At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? Grateful to be with you all this morning. Uh, Communion Sundays are some of my favorite Sundays because we get to remember what the Lord Jesus has accomplished. He did not merely make salvation possible, but he accomplished something. It is finished. It is done. As Peter says, this inheritance that Christ has won for us is imperishable, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. And so we can rejoice. So thank you, Andy, for leading us this morning. As Andy said, my name is Lorino, as it shows on the slide behind me as well. I oversee our groups and student ministry here and just want to welcome you. I'm truly privileged to bring the word this morning. And our text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Kind of a lengthy passage, but that's where we'll be this morning. So if you would turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And these are the words of God. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage the household of God, how, I'm sorry, if he does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Verse 8, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray now as your word goes forth that you would speak, that your spirit would be the one who is speaking, and that you would draw our affections towards the Lord Jesus in all of his loveliness, in all of his purity, that we would look to him as the great shepherd, as the true leader and king of the church, and that, we would, that you would grant us submission to him, also as we would submit to the leaders that you have placed over us. Lord, bless your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Timothy. We're working through the entire letter of 1 Timothy in a series we've called Church, Why Bother? And this series is really asking the question, why do we bother with church? What is the purpose? We gather here every Sunday on the Lord's Day. Why do we do it? What's the purpose? How is this church to function? That is what this series is dealing with. Now, by way of reminder, this letter of 1 Timothy is the first of two letters written by the Apostle Paul to young Timothy. 
Timothy is Paul's protege, his disciple, his child in the faith, and he's writing to him as a young pastor. You see, Paul planted a church in the city of Ephesus probably eight to ten years before this, and Paul sends Timothy to set things in order. There was chaos reigning in this church, as we'll see. Timothy, for Timothy, this is a how-to guide for how he is to conduct himself within the church. So you want to know how to conduct yourself in the church? Read this letter. That's why Paul wrote it. So if you remember what happened in chapter 1, the section that we dealt with in the second week of our series, Paul's primary purpose for writing this letter and sending Timothy was to deal with false teachers that had infected the church. These false teachers began to teach different doctrines than the ones that Paul had originally established. These teachers were clearly confident in what they were saying. They clearly seemed to be um, confident. They seemed to know what they were talking about. Paul actually says that they are without understanding. Simply put, these false teachers were unqualified leaders. The falsehood of their teaching was evident, not only by what they taught, but how their teaching affected their hearers. Good, proper, true, and biblical teaching that honors God will always without fail, produce love for and obedience to Christ. Anything else that deviates from that pattern is false. As we saw in this case, their false teaching, as Paul says, it produces speculation, confusion. They're wondering, well, what's going on over here? I thought they were so confused, and that is not what biblical preaching is. In short, because of these unqualified leaders, there was widespread chaos within the church. That is what unqualified leaders do. They spread and produce and promote chaos within Christ's church. And as such, this church was in desperate need of qualified leaders who would fight against the chaos, who would establish order, which is precisely why Paul sent Timothy to this church. You know, a couple summers ago, my wife and I would go down to a small church just outside of Detroit in the city of Hamtramck, and we would help out with their park ministry. Their park ministry, they still do it now, where they go down to a local park uh, within this apartment complex in the city of Hamtramck, and this church puts on a kids' camp. They play nine square with them and play basketball and color pictures and teach them about Jesus. And it was my very first time ever going down there. I had some friends that were in the group, but my very first time ever going down there, I was invited back to the pastor's home where we were able to kind of continue hanging out and getting to know each other. To this day, this pastor is a good friend of mine, someone who I have the utmost respect for, and I I really love his company. I share that to demonstrate just how important it is that there are godly, qualified leaders within the church. He had such an impact on me that I would seek to model how he runs his church because of how well it was done. He was a qualified leader who ran his church well, and I had such an impact on me. Now, some of you can say, yeah, amen, I agree. I've had a similar, uh, similar story. I've been, the, I've been recipient of the blessings of having good church leaders. So you can say, yeah, they're important. But also, if you've ever experienced church hurt at the hands of church leaders, you would also say good church leaders are important. Our text this morning is devoted to demonstrating why biblically qualified leaders are so important and also what they look like. Now, before we really deep dive into the qualifications here, it's important to note that the New Testament recognizes two positions, or we can call them offices, of church leadership. There are elders and there are deacons. The qualifications for elder are found in verses 1 through 7. As Pastor Winston briefly mentioned last week, the title of elder is synonymous with overseer, pastor, bishop. They're all the same title. 
Or they're all the same function, they just uh, titled differently. Elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, all the same thing. We're probably most familiar with pastor here though. See, the chief responsibility of these pastor, elder, elder overseers is to provide spiritual oversight within the church. And the primary way they do that is by ruling and teaching. An example of this is the public preaching of God's word on Sunday morning, as well as the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They preach and they rule through those ordinances. This pastor, elder, overseer office is exclusively reserved for biblically qualified men. I will make myself clear, there is no such thing as a female pastor. Paul knows no terms and the Bible knows, the New Testament knows no such category. Paul is extensively, Paul labors extensively to this point and he is clear because of the male pronoun he throughout these qualifications in verses one through seven, as well as the fact that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Even in today's society, you cannot be the husband of one wife while being a woman. Now, some would argue that Paul was somehow misogynistic or that this principle was limited to his day in that church in the first century. And I frankly think both of those arguments come to ruin. First, in, we'll address the misogyny charge. This text is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so if we were to say that Paul was misogynistic, then we must say that God is somehow misogynistic and that God is to be blamed for this. And I don't think anyone would dare to do that. However, as far as the cultural principle is concerned, Paul roots his argument in the story of creation. He roots his argument in the biblical story of creation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you have questions about that, you can look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Now, Lest you men begin to applaud and the women are disgruntled and say, hey, that's not fair. Paul does not allow all men to be pastors. In fact, the very reason why Paul wrote this letter to begin with was because there was unqualified men running the church. So we can say that the office of pastor is not just for any and all men, but it is for qualified men according to biblical standards. Now, the second office is that of deacon, and their qualifications are in verses 8 through 13. The word deacon is diakonos in the Greek, which simply just means servant. So as their, as their title would imply, their role is to serve the church. So elders take care of the spiritual needs through the ministry of the word, through prayer, and deacons handle the physical needs of the church. The primary way they do that is by serving the physical needs. Uh, so for example, our deacons here oversee what's called our Deacon Benevolence Fund. And a lot of churches have this, but this is essentially a fund that we have at our church specifically for allowing the church, who ha people who have physical needs, the deacons oversee this fund. They come to the deacons and say, hey, I need this or I need that. And the deacons are able to evaluate the case and provide for their physical needs. So uh, an example would be someone loses their job and now has to pay for groceries. This fund can be used for that. They handle the physical needs of the church. Now, the office of deaconess, which is women deacons, is debated amongst faithful scholars because to be completely honest, verse 11 is rather unclear. It could refer to their wives, as it shows in the ESV, or it could also mean the women of the church. Some churches would say that it refers to their wives, considering a deaconess to be the wife of a deacon, and others who would take the latter route, saying that it refers to the women, believe the office of deaconess to be a separate office. So you have elders, deacons, and deaconesses. Woodside would take that latter route, considering a deaconess to be 
is a separate office. So our deaconesses here, for example, one of our deaconesses oversees our food pantry ministry, which is not a ruling or teaching function, but it provides for the physical needs of the church and of people in our congregation. Nevertheless, whether you think that it's a real thing or not, they function in the exact same way. Deacons and deaconesses both function in the same way to care for the physical needs of the church. Now, regardless, though, of whether you're an elder or deacon or a deaconess, the overarching theme of the qualifications for this text is that the church is to be cared for by qualified, faithful leaders who promote order, beauty, and life. The church is to be cared for by qualified and faithful leaders who promote order, beauty, and life. This promotion of order, beauty, and life is the essential function of anyone who would seek to be a leader in Christ's church. And when leaders come together, when elders, deacons, and deaconesses come together, they promote, and when they do this properly, they're to promote order, beauty, and life within Christ's church. So an example of this is found in Acts chapter 6. Essentially, there was a lack of order within the church. What the early church was committed to was daily distributions of food for the widows in their community. So they would, they would host these daily distributions where there would be widows within the community. They would come and receive food. However, what happened is there was a particular group of widows that was being overlooked. They weren't receiving the daily distribution of food. We can call this chaos, right? These women are being overlooked. That's chaotic. So what the apostles did, which we can kind of consider them an elder-like or an elder type, they established order. They were busy with the spiritual needs of this church. They said that we cannot give up preaching and the, and the ministry of the word to serve tables. We cannot give up the spiritual needs. Therefore, what they do is they appoint deacons. And these deacons handle the physical needs by serving these women. So what I want you to see is that the apostles, which again is an elder type, brought order to the situation within the church, and the deacons then serve the physical needs of the people, bringing order, beauty, and life to the church. Hopefully, for those of us men who have been attending Band of Brothers, this phrase, order, beauty, and life, has begun to ring a few bells within your mind. This is exactly what Scott and Pastor Vince have been teaching us men throughout the last couple months. Hopefully, you wives of men who attend Band of Brothers have heard this, and if not, men, talk to your wives more. You see, church leaders are to bring order, beauty, and life to Christ's church. That is their primary function. In order to understand where that comes from, though, we have to travel back in time to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Just as Paul labored to, uh, with the office of elder to be reserved for men, he appeals back to creation. We also must appeal back to creation in order to understand what is going on here. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is the anchor. It is the foundation of not just the biblical storyline, but the fabric of reality itself. What happens when, when our world denies that? We see it all around. They deny that God exists, right? That is in Genesis 1. They deny that God has created all things. That is in Genesis 1. They deny male and female. That is in Genesis 1 and 2. When we deny or somehow miss or allegorize Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we will go wrong everywhere else. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see God as a God of order, beauty, and life. And this orderly, beautiful, life-giving God does exactly what he does in Genesis 1 and 2. God brings order to the world. He moves into the dark and formless world and brings order. He brings light to it. He continues by bringing order 
via a literal and sequential six-day creation. Day one, this happens. Day two, this happens. Day three, day four, day five, and so on. But those things are also beautiful. Look at the sun and the moon and the stars. Get up early enough or go to bed late enough and see the sun set and the sun rise. It is glorious to see. That is a reflection of God. Furthermore, these things that God has created also give life. Of course, us as human beings, as the pinnacle of God's creation, give life through reproduction. There are a lot of babies here, so praise the Lord. But also the things of God's world also give life. The trees are to do what? Produce fruit. That is an act of life-giving. So far through Genesis 2, we all know everything is well. We're all good here. Order, beauty, and life is established. That's going great. Genesis 3 is when sin enters the picture, though. Actually, I should not say that sin enters the picture. Sin crashes onto the scene. It punches through the picture and the frame and sends shattered glass all over the place. As Doug Wilson says, Genesis 3 is not so much the fall, but the crash. And because of sin, these consequences follow. Disobedience begets consequences. And all the parents said, amen. Consequences of sin are all-encompassing. And as Pastor Vince and I were just discussing earlier, the, the consequences of sin is because sin is ultimately a rebellion against God and his character. And so God judges based upon that rebellion. However, at its most basic fundamental level, what happened in creation is that this once orderly, beautiful, life-giving world that God has created quickly, very quickly, becomes overrun by the monsters of chaos, corruption, and death. Order, beauty, and life is what God has established. Sin has transgressed against what God has established. And because of that, no more order, beauty, and life. Now we have chaos, corruption, and death. It doesn't even take more than a few verses to see that chaos ensuing, beauty being corrupted, and death now reigning. Just one chapter later in chapter four, Adam and Eve's children get into this argument and Cain, who is a representation of life, brings forth death by murdering his brother, Abel. Life is now turned to death. If you read Genesis 5, it is the death chapter. This guy died, and this guy died, and this guy. And it's just this continuous cycle of death. Nevertheless, God is not a God who will allow chaos, corruption, and death to rule his creation. We have in Genesis 3, the gospel, or Genesis 3, verse 15, the gospel. Just after chaos ensues, God promises that he will send one who will once and for all destroy Satan, who is the supreme agent of chaos and the ultimate false teacher. This serpent-crushing Savior is none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there has been a battle since that promise in Genesis 3:15 between Christ and the monsters of chaos— but it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that these monsters of chaos are disarmed from their rule and they will soon be defeated completely. Colossians 2.15, it is through the death of Christ that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over in them in Christ. Satan and his agents of chaos, corruption, and death have been disarmed from their rule and Christ has openly triumphed over in them by his resurrection. And it is now in Christ and in Christ alone that God is reversing and undoing the effects of sin. 
You say, wow, how did he get that from Gen- from, from 1 Timothy chapter 3? Stay with me. Jesus is the king of kings, and therefore, as the king, he is ruling currently now. He is subduing chaos, bringing order and, and life. He is also bringing beauty as he cleanses his people from their sins, and he brings life to all who would come to him. Under his rule, as the king, we now have what we can call a new creation order. No longer will the monsters of chaos, corruption, and death rule in his kingdom, but it is through this new creation order that the king restores all things. This new creation order we can call the church. And it, we can say then that it is Christ's mission to bring order, beauty, and life through his church. What he is doing in and through his church is restoring all things back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We can call it back to an Edenic state, back to how things were in the Garden of Eden. That is what Christ is doing through his church. As King Jesus brings order, beauty, and life, it is paramount to the mission of the church that his servants, elders and deacons, and you and I as well, but for this text, elders and deacons be committed to that same mission. Timothy dealt with the reality of what happens when king, the king's servants waver from his mission. Instead of bringing order, beauty, and life as they were taught, they brought chaos, corruption, and death. This is not a hypothetical either. The, the, the reality of false teachers is not something that was exclusive to Paul's day. This is something that is happening currently right now, and it is because there are unqualified leaders within the church. Therefore, it is paramount, again, that Christ's servants be committed to his mission. As we turn our attention to the qualifications needed to be a leader in Christ's church, Paul does not necessarily specify how these offices of elders and deacons are to function. We get that from other places in the New Testament. But rather, Paul deals with the character behind these individuals. The character is to be that of not only an external commitment, but an internal commitment to the mission of the king. In fact, if you look at the list, and there's some behind me, this is kind of the overarching theme of both elders and deacon qualifications, there is only one of them out of all of these that deals with competency or performance, and that is that elders must be able to teach, found in chapter 3, verse 2. Elders are, are to be able to teach God's word, but that is, only, that is the only competency in this entire text. Every other one refers to character. It refers, it, it refers to their proven track record of faithfulness. This deals with what, what I'm going to refer to and as Scott and Vince refer to as the backstage life, this life that no one sees. So rather than dealing with the, kind of the specificities of each, as you'll see here, we're going to kind of run with that middle section here, and this is what we're going we're to group them together. So as we turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll see that Paul's first qualification is that church leaders must have control over their appetites. Church leaders must have control over their appetites. We see this in verses 1 through 3 and 8 through 9. Elders are to be sober-minded, and deacons are not to be addicted to much wine. Now, Paul is not prohibiting alcohol consumption as he tells Timothy to drink wine for his upset stomach in chapter 5. What Paul is dealing with, though, is drinking and, being, and drinking in excess, is being addicted to the wine, is being addicted to the alcohol. There is such a, a propensity to indulge, especially with alcohol. And Paul says, hey, if you have a problem with this, cut it out. You must have control over your appetite. You cannot indulge in these things. 
Moreover, they are not to be lovers of money or greedy for dishonest gain. That is another qualification that he lists for elders and deacons. Unfortunately, if you've ever seen the film American Gospel, it demonstrates this, I think, wonderfully. What happens when the church is overrun by leaders who do not know how to handle their appetites? They begin to feed upon the church and they begin to build a platform for themselves. They say, hey, I want to be famous. Let me use the church to do that. I want to be wealthy. Let me use the church to do that. That is an unqualified leader. So what Paul deals with here is that elders and deacons alike must not or must maintain control over their appetites. They cannot be ruled by their desires. When church leaders do not maintain control over their appetites, chaos will inevitably reign. What happens is these shepherds who have been charged by God to care for Christ's sheep end up feeding upon the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. They want money, they feed upon the sheep for money. They want success, they feed upon the sheep for success. That is wicked and ungodly. Paul says they must have control over their appetites. They cannot feed upon the sheep, but they must feed the sheep. The second thing that Paul deals with is that church leaders must have grace in their relationships. Elders are to be hospitable, not violent, but gentle. They are to have grace. To be hospitable just means to be a lover of a stranger. The most loving, kind, grace-filled people within our church should be our elders. It would be a miracle if one of you were able to walk into our church for two consecutive weeks and not be greeted by Pastor Winston at the door with a smile, a handshake, and a hello. It would be impossible for that to happen. He does a wonderful job of being hospitable, of being a lover of strangers. Now, I will say that being gracious in one's relationships with others does not mean that you tolerate everything. We just paint over it and say, well, we'll just that's grace. We'll just chalk it up. No, not at all. John Calvin once said that pastors ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the second for driving away wolves and thieves. Even Timothy was called to contend for the truth in chapter 1, verse 5. Now, the way he was to do that, though, was not with authority, not with brute authority and domineering strength, but with love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Deacons, likewise, are not to be slanderous. They're not to be privy to, to speaking evil of one another or of individuals within the church. Cancel culture is something, it's a new phenomenon that has swept our nation and our culture. It is saying that you said something, therefore we will cancel you. You have no right to speak again. Someone makes a foolish tweet, and albeit might be foolish, but before their phone even gets back in their pocket, the four o'clock news has run a story that they are disqualified from their phone privileges. It's absurd. Those seeking leadership in the church must not behave as cancel culture does, as Galatians 5 says, biting and devouring one another. But they're to be full of grace and full of kindness. They're to, to contend for the truth, absolutely, but they're to do that with a spirit of grace, kindness, and humility. Now again, there is a time where church discipline must be enacted and people must be put out of the church, but that is not before, church, uh, before the, the leaders extend grace to these individuals. The next thing that Paul deals with here is that church leaders must have leadership within their home. I'm going to argue that this is one of, maybe not the most important, but one of the most important qualifications that church leaders must have leadership within their home. In both verse 4 and 12, Paul says that the, that the leaders, if you're aspiring to be an elder or a deacon, you must have leadership within your home. 
Elders and deacons alike must manage their household well, as the text says. The reason why at-home involvement is so crucial is simply this. How someone manages their home, which we can consider a mini-church, is how they will run the church. How they act at home, how a leader acts at home with their children and their spouse, is how they will handle themselves within the church. Whether they do it by force or by absence or by love, it will be the same within the church. One pastor I was listening to recently talked about how leadership is some, in the home is not something that we can choose to engage in or not, but something that happens no matter what. So leadership within your home is not something you can choose to engage in or not engage in. It happens no matter what. By way of illustration, the empty chair at the table or the lack of discipleship of your children would, would communicate that they are not that important. The empty chair at the dinner table speaks just as loudly as the parent who yells and screams at their spouse and at their children. It speaks just as loudly. The empty chair speaks through absence, demonstrating that their children really are not that important. The angry, yelling, domineering parent communicates that I am the most important. But either way, there's leadership. It's just whether it's good or bad leadership. The former, again, leads through absence, the latter leads by saying that they are the most important. So leadership is not optional, but something that will happen no matter what. It's just whether it's good or, good or bad leadership. Now, this behind-the-scenes leadership will undoubtedly make some prospective elder and deacon candidates nervous. Uh, my, my child sinned yesterday. What am I going to do? What Paul says here is not that you're to have sinless and obedient, uh, perfectly obedient children that never sin. What Paul does require here, though, from the household is a general spirit of submission to the Father's leadership. This means, then, that church leaders must be so, so intentionally driven to cultivate in their children's hearts and their spouses' hearts, particularly if they're husbands, particularly in their wives' and their children's hearts, by raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Here, what we see here is a delicate mix of tenderness and firmness to lead and guide their families in the way of righteousness and godliness. You see, each one of our lives is an unfolding play. Within the play, there's a front stage and a backstage. Now, we don't have a backstage here. We just kind of have a stage, so bear with me. But the backstage is where all the prep work is done, right? This is where you build the set. This is where you organize your outfits. This is where you rehearse your lines. You make sure everything is perfect in the backstage because the front stage is where the magic happens, right? This is what everyone sees. It's on full, what happens in the backstage is on full display in the front stage. This, in the front stage, it becomes evident to people watching whether or not you have genuinely prepared in the backstage. Now, just as in a play the backstage informs the front stage life, it is the exact same thing in the Christian life. If a leader, if an individual has developed and cultivated a relationship with the Lord backstage, a deep and abiding, rich relationship with the Lord backstage, that will be plain to others around you. Although you can maybe say, well, you know, you can fake a smile for a bit in the front stage. If your backstage is a chaotic mess, at some point or another, that's going to show. If your backstage is chaos, you will eventually walk out into the front stage, forgetting your lines, misplacing your uniform, and having things fall over, all over the place. You say, okay, well, what, what does that mean? How do, we, how do we deal with this? How a leader lives their life when no one is looking, particularly in their home, is how they will guide their home. So how they love their spouse, how they love their children, whether they spend time in prayer, studying God's word, 
all of this will eventually be made very clear to the public. Therefore, before an individual is even considered for leadership within the church, they must be intentionally cultivating little disciples at home. So what we have seen thus far is that church leaders must have control over their appetites, grace in their relationships, leadership in their homes, and finally there to have maturity in the faith. Church leaders must have maturity in the faith. As verses 6 and 10 show, elders must not be recent converts and deacons must be tested first. Now, although most of those who come to faith in Christ are the most zealous ones, when I came to faith in Christ, nothing could stop me, not the gates of hell. They're also the most immature, right? These, they're the most zealous and we praise God for their zeal, but they're often the most immature ones in the church. Now, that is not a bad thing. That's just something that needs to be developed and grown. However, they have not placed themselves under the authority of God long enough to be trusted to exercise authority over others. Spiritual maturity here is the foundation on which all other qualifications are built. We could think of a Lego structure. The foundation of this is spiritual maturity. Without it, you have nothing else. Without spiritual maturity, it is impossible to have control over your appetites. There is also no such thing as the spiritually mature person who is genuinely spiritually mature that does not provide leadership within their homes. In his book, It's Good to Be a Man, Michael Foster states that it is impossible to be a good father without first learning to be a good son. He continues this by saying that it is the immature leaders within the church who are eager to exercise authority without themselves being placed under the authority of God. So in other words, kind of what Foster is dealing with here is that a good leader is born out of being a good follower, right? A good shepherd is born out of being shepherded by Christ first. An individual who can be trusted to exercise authority over others is the individual who is most submitted to the authority of God in his word. No one would ever give the keys to a four, of a Ferrari to a four-year-old, right? Or if you're Pastor Vince, to the Corvette. We would never give the keys to a Ferrari or a Corvette to a four-year-old. This four-year-old is not mature enough, nor they have, have they had enough life experience to properly handle said Corvette or Ferrari. The same is, though, is true for those in the church. However, the church is far more, infinitely more precious than a Ferrari, the, Christ is the, uh, the church is for those in whom Christ has died and she is his precious bride. Men, if someone were to lay a finger upon our wives, our friends would need to bail us out of jail the next morning. Amen? Amen? Amen. Thank you. Now, if, fallen, if you and I as fallen men have such passion and zeal to protect our wives, how much more does Christ care for his? What holy wrath and fury awaits those who mistreat his bride? What I would call each of us to this morning is to find yourself a church with godly leaders who model these characteristics and place yourself and your family under their leadership. It can be frightening to place yourself under leadership. I don't want to minimize that or somehow overlook that. However, the solution to bad leadership is good leadership. Where can you find that, say, you say? Where, where can we find a church? Like, here is a great place. I say that as a non-elder or a deacon, so I'm allowed to say that, and I can encourage the things that God is doing here. I firmly believe, though, 
Again, as someone who has witnessed our elders and deacons handle difficult situations and serve the needs of our people, that they are individuals who do indeed model these four characteristics. They fit so, not because I said so, but if you'd like to talk to Bill Coughlin, one of our newly, one of our newly instated elders, or Vince, there is a very, very, very thorough process that goes through to ensure that there are qualified leaders in the church. That is, we're not giving the keys of the church to a four-year-old. Again, I don't want to somehow overlook the fact that it can be frightening to place yourself under leadership. I don't want to minimize that. However, as I said, there is no greater joy than putting yourself under the care of godly leaders because you are following godly leaders who care for your soul. Now, if you're a part of the church body here, I would encourage you to thank your pastors, thank your leaders who, hear, who are here, who pray for you more than you could ever imagine. Their, their countless prayers, the time spent discussing how they can serve you is evident of their love for you. Now, if you are not a part of a church, again, would it challenge you and encourage you to make this your church home? And you can do that through church membership. Church membership is not somehow an admittance to the club or to Christianity, but it is the intentional practice of saying, I want to I place myself under the care of these leaders. These leaders are godly. They will shepherd me and my family well, and I want to join and partner with what God is doing here. Churches are not immune to chaos and corruption. So, as I think I have clearly demonstrated, it is of the utmost importance that godly leaders are those who promote order, beauty, and life. I know that the, la- the history of this church is plagued, unfortunately, with leaders who have not shepherded well. And so I want to encourage you as the church that God has uniquely called and gifted our leadership here. Please know that the leaders that we have here are not abusive. They are not harsh. They are not selfish or money-hungry, unqualified leaders who promote chaos. Instead, the leaders that we have here do indeed promote order, beauty, and life in Christ's church. And they do that for your benefit and for God's glory. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that your word is surely strong enough to pierce through our hearts. Lord, I would encourage and challenge anyone in here who is feeling some sort of desire for church leadership. And even if they're not, Lord, these are noble. It's a noble task, as your word says, to aspire to these qualifications. Lord, let us all be leaders in our homes, loving our children and our spouse as well. Let us all be ones who exhibit grace towards one another, that this isn't something that is just for our leadership that we don't need to do, Lord, but this is something we need to model. Having control over our appetites, grace in our relationships, maturity in the faith. Lord, these are all things you call each and every one of us to. And as you, Christ, are bringing order, beauty, and life to your church and to the world, we pray that we would do the same. Lord, thank you for all that Jesus has accomplished for us. We bless him in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would ask that you all sing. We're going to sing one final song. We're going to sing the doxology and praise God for all that he has done. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today. 